Chris and Peter. Good morning, my love. Good morning, my love. Ooh, you don't sound so hot today. Do I ever? Yeah. First thing when I, like, I just got out of bed like four minutes ago. No, it's been ten. I've been keeping track. Okay. So, uh, how'd you sleep last night? Pretty hard. Pretty hard, pretty good? Pretty hard. Woke up at 5 a.m., but went back to bed till 8, so mm -hmm. it was pretty good. Well, I woke up at 5 a.m. and stayed up because uh, your boy is a little baby bitch boy when it comes to spicy, and I decided to get the hot salsa on my Chipotle burrito, and because I am over 9,000 level white, uh, it got me up at 5 this morning with... Uh, I'll spare our viewers the more graphic details, but let's just say things got spicy, y'all. You did it to yourself. I know, I always do. I love the taste, and I love, like, even, like, I, I mean, the, the Chipotle burrito didn't cause me to sweat last night, but I love the, the kind of, the level of spiciness that makes you sweat. Yeah. But then, later on, like, my tum-tum, you know, like, I, uh, I told you about eating that pickle at that cookout. The that spicy one. pickle? Yeah. From that deli that doesn't exist anymore that I think they were like a Polish deli or something like that in Topeka. But they didn't they, they told me it was spicy. I didn't believe how spicy it was. And it hurt my stomach. Like it tasted like actually it didn't even taste good. It was just hot. It was so hot I just wanted to get it out of my mouth, so I swallowed it, mostly whole. But that was a bad idea because I think that just kinda like it disintegrated. Like it preserved the spiciness in its essence and it was like disintegrating my stomach from the inside. Gross. Yeah. So. So spicy does not agree with you, but you love it. But I love it. And so, yeah, so that's why I've been up. But since then, I've gotten in like 3,000 steps. I got more than six and a half minutes on my plank game thing. Uh, and I got uh, 100 grips in on the 150-pound gripper while I've been doing like some morning projects and some other things. Good for you being yeah. so active this morning. Yes, very productive. Do you feel rested? Yeah, I feel I feel very rested. I, I went to sleep at like 11 o'clock-ish last night, right? Somewhere. Yeah, so you got your six hours. Yeah, so I got my, my time. Um, so I will function today. Work will be good. But yeah, so one thing that I kind of wanted to do an episode on when we had some downtime was just the, the projects that I do and like more of the artistic ones. Yeah, I'd love to hear about it. Okay, so, because I've got ADHD and, like, I, I start a lot of projects, but I don't finish them, and I have a hard time prioritizing, and, like, you know, when I do get into flow, I do great work, but, like, facilitating flow and, like, scheduling and yada, 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 those are all things that I've had to learn to get better at during my life, and as part of that, I use a project management software, a free version uh, of Trello, and... Trello's great because you can just set up what's called a Kanban board. You know, my people who do software development or product development or anything like that, uh, they know about Kanban. They know about, you know, these different methodologies. But uh, I kind of just have my own version of it where it's my, more of like an idea repository. Like I've got multiple backlogs for different things. But then I prioritize things, uh, projects, into real world like timely things that are tied into my calendar. And I've gotten pretty good at estimating how long something's going to take and then getting it scheduled in at a time when it will actually get done. 
and then motivating myself to do the thing. And it's it's even just basic habit. Like I have a card every day for my daily habits. There's like 32 things each day that I try to do. And it's stuff that's, you know, so basic as, you know, brush my teeth, floss every day, right? But, you know, long term. Drink water. Drink water first thing when I wake up. Get 10 minutes of sunlight in the morning, you know, at some point, you know. Get 10,000 steps a day. Work out every day. The stuff like that, right? And so, yeah. Um, that's kind of how I keep track of, like, you know, basically I find myself thinking, oh, shit, like, what should I be doing? Or I find myself just being like, oh, I'm really fucking around right now. I should be doing something productive. And it helps remove the what should I be doing aspect of it. Do you it. have your products or projects on your Trello cards in order of priority of, like, I want to do this first? Yeah, well, so I, I kind of, I every week uh, on Saturday, I look over my board and kind of just do a general lay of the land, like, what's going on, like, what, what have I gotten done? What do I need to get done? That's like time, uh, like tied to a time aspect. Like there's a day so that for needs each, to be done. Uh, that's my favorite mm-hmm. part is for each card you pick, you're able to set a date where you're in time that you're going to do it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And then uh, tying that into my Google Calendar because um, I have that tied into my phone. And I mean, you can, you can do it a bunch of different ways, right? Notifications and whatnot. But this is what I found works for me is I use the Trello board to kind of organize and schedule and kind of like as a hub for everything. And then that ties into Google Calendar. And then Google Calendar lets me know on my phone because I've allowed Google Calendar to show me certain notifications. So for the way that I have my life set up, that's a good system for identifying what I want to do, scheduling out it out in a way that it will actually be reasonable to do it, and then getting it done. One of my favorite things that you do, I've noticed, is for... The title of every Trello card project, um, in brackets afterwards, you put the next action item on it. Yeah, that's just more of trying to remove the the thought of what what was I doing? Where did where can I where, where did I, I leave off? Up? Yeah, where where can I pick this up? Yeah, and so yeah, I I've that's again another thing. Just over years of doing project based work, something that I can. Oh, you want a refill? Coffee refill. Please. Coffee refill time. Hey, uh, take this time for yourself. This is this is a quick aside. Think of this as kind of a commercial for Folgers, <laughs> right? Folgers, sponsor of this podcast. Not really, but uh, let's act like they are because that's what we're drinking. We're drinking a uh, the the first round of grounds was French vanilla, and then I threw. A, I, I've been doing this thing where I throw like a scoop of of regular on top to kind of extend the French vanilla because you know they only sell it in those half size containers, and so uh, this is. A manifestation of the trauma that I experienced when I was in my youth growing up in scarcity uh, that I've just carried over into my adult life. Love that. Let's all celebrate that. Let's celebrate your trauma. Yeah. Okay, so that was a, a commercial for Folgers. I think they'll they'll love that. Um, so back to what we're we talking about. We're talking about Trello. We're talking about projects. You want coffee. How? Yeah, just how you use your project management software to basically organize your brain. Yeah, to, to kind of yeah, get a get down into something digital, just what's on my mind and what I want to do cuz like all of our home projects, there's like a completely separate thing for just what are we doing with the house right now. Yeah. Right? And that's prioritized and scheduled and, you know, it's great. So you have separate cards for like home projects and personal projects? Yeah, and and for some of these things like I I even have like separate boards like yeah, and it, but that's kind of, I don't know, that gets kind of unwieldy, but I like, I don't know, I since I'm basically the only person using it, yeah, I, I have it all on one board for the most part. Uh-huh. Just different, um, different 
columns for different groups of projects. Gotcha. So like there'll be a column for home. There'll be a column for uh, the, I've got some art stuff that I'm doing. There'll be a, a column for just general everyday stuff, right? And then further to the right, we're talking about going from left to right right now. Further to the right, you'll have one that's like, what am I actually doing this week, right? And then you kind of move that over into, you know, then, then you go from there and prioritize and schedule from that, that further over right column into an even further over right column that's, what am I doing today? Okay. Right? And then from today, you say, what am I working on right now? So in the, what am I doing today and working on right now column, mm-hmm. do you just like keep a certain number in the, of project cards in that, those columns? So this gets back to how I have developed a pretty decent idea of how long certain tasks are going to take. Yeah. And so when I'm prioritizing and scheduling, I'll keep that in mind. And I'll only prioritize and schedule an amount of work that I think is reasonable. Or maybe even a little less, just because sometimes things take longer than you think they should or like like maybe you need to go do another chore you know during the time like yeah, stuff comes up right so I try to be kind of conservative with that and also that's just a way to be kind to myself right because like mental health wise like if I schedule a bunch of things and I don't get them done then mentally it's like ah oh, you failure like ah I'm like I know negative self-talk I shouldn't do all that sort of stuff but like still the act of like you know quote unquote having the intention of doing something and then like seeing that I didn't do those things like, to, to be repeatedly moving things backwards over and over again yeah. is psychologically not great. When so I tell, good schedule When I important. talk to my clients about how they organize and schedule their lives, like, for the day, I tell them, like, write down everything that needs to be done, but put a star or highlight just one, thing. one yeah. to three things, mm-hmm. like, three max yep. that are the top priority that you absolutely want to get done. And I say one to three because I say based on the resources and energy level and time you have that day, it might be one thing that for sure will get done up to three. Mm -hmm. And then you can celebrate if you do more than that. Right. But like keep it very reasonable and small so that you don't feel like you're disappointing yourself. Yep. Yep. I I think that's great advice. And, you know, actually looking at my Trello board, I do have um, on my work in progress column a note that says max three. And... I mean, I guess that would mean, like, don't work on more than three things at once. But really, I'm, I try to think of, like, don't don't have, like, more than three things scheduled in a day. So, yeah, I guess I kind of reflect that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Tell yeah. me about mm. the more creative projects that you said you have. Yeah, so I... Okay, how, how do I frame this? I, I think a lot of creative people create just because they need to create, right? You have this, this thing inside you that's like, I need to get something out. Some people play music... Right, some people uh, like uh, make visual art, like photography or or painting or drawing or tattooing or whatnot. Um, and I am the kind of person who I have to get words out. You know, like my art is words mainly, at least right now in my life. At different points in my life, I've done like I have a degree in multimedia production and design, which is, I mean, for ten years ago it was you know making video and photos and words and then putting that into digital formats, like creating websites and doing. Like, uh, like mass publishing and things like that. Like, think a newspaper, but digital. Yeah. You know? And so, for me, all of it is rooted in writing. Because I've just been a very expressive person, I come from a family of people who talk. They're all salesmen, for the most part. Or, uh-huh. or like, some version of it, right? Like, all of my uncles, you know, sold steel or sold cogs or sold... Uh, like I, I, one, one of them actually sells like the fittings for piping or something like that. Multi-billion dollar business. You know, I'm not talking shit on it or anything like that, but like, I don't know. It just feels like a different time when you could like 
go get out of college, get a sales job, work that sales job for literally 50 years. Right. And then live at your country club or whatever. Um, yeah, it's weird life. But anyway, so, and my mom, like she was a clerk, uh, or a waitress, right? So you're constantly talking to people. Um, and so, yeah, like mainly just like talking all the time. And I think for me, because I'm, uh, kind of like a, I don't know, I, I've, introverted tendencies I would say and I like to be alone and really early on like even one of my earliest memories and I like I kind of cringe at this now is uh I was probably like five like five or six or like when, when do you start writing like yeah like and like like in, in in sentences and things like that and I wrote a story about Abraham Lincoln I can't even remember what the story was about it was just about Abe Lincoln and just like little me, just like writing a story, just like a nonsensical kind of like, I'm sure it made sense to me, but just like a silly little thing. Yeah. And so even from like being a little, little kid, um, I'm probably like, you know, dating that too early, but like just me to get stuff out. And so even now I, I have a notebook that I keep. that's kind of like, uh, like some people keep a commonplace book or a journal or like, I, I don't know that a commonplace book is so common these days. It was more something that like people did uh, a few hundred years ago. Uh-huh. Um, but basically the idea is to kind of every day take a, a note of the, like the things that were impactful to you. So like, maybe it's people you meet, maybe it's things you thought, maybe it's ideas you encountered, maybe it's experiences like, you or had. Or like a quote that you saw. Or a quote that you thought of, or, or, or something you came up with yourself, or, um, a thing you read, or, I don't know, or, or maybe you draw in it, right? Some people draw things, or like do diagrams. And so I write like that and I write, I do poems that basically nobody sees and, you know, nobody will ever see for the most part. You show me your poems. Yeah. You see my, most of my poetry. Like, yeah. But yeah. like, I would say there, there's even a good portion of it that like, I, I'm the only person who's ever read it. Yeah. You know? Um, and you know, that I think to me proves that authentically I am a writer. Like I am someone who writes, I have to write. It's a thing that I, it manifests in my job. What do I do? A lot of copywriting. Yeah. What is search engine optimization? It's figuring out how words turn into symbols and those symbols get projected to people in a way that they take action. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just the application of writing and writing is just applicate. Like it's just communication. It's a form of communication that is just kind of specialized. And so a lot of my art projects are kind of around that. Like I want to, I have a bunch of cat poems, right. That I want to write a, uh, or I want to put together a chat book that consists of, just the poems and then little illustrations of the poems on the opposite page. And so that, that's something that I have going on. Um, recently I've started experimenting with videography and photography. Uh, and so that's been fun. Like our, our vacation photos were bomb, right? People thought that we hired a professional photographer, right? Um, the, the people who have shown them off, uh, have gotten that feedback. And something that I've done for a long time, even since college, um, kind of, yeah, because that's when I first got a cell phone and I had the means to have a recorder on me reasonably all the time, like unobtrusive, you know, phones, people have them out on the phone or on the table all the time, right? It's not weird to have a recording device in your face yeah. in this day and age, but at a point in time it was. Um, and so, you know, there would be points I can remember during my freshman, sophomore year of college where I would just pull out my phone and, you know, we'd be having a really great conversation. I'd say, oh, this is this is so great. I want to remember this when I'm older. Like, do you guys mind if I pull my phone out and just turn the recorder on and throw that on? I'll share it in a uh, Google Drive folder with you guys later. 
those still, but I, I just looked it up the other day, a bunch of those still exist. Like, isn't that wild that, like, I still have those converse, and yeah, I listen to them now, again, cringe. You know, hearing a, an earlier version of oneself is always kind of cringy. Right. And so, yeah, so uh, that kind of leads me into, yeah, I've been um, recording people's stories lately, just, uh, you know, different folks in my life that I enjoy. Yeah, um, you recorded like, my mom over Christmas. Yep, recorded your mom over Christmas for like three hours-ish. Mm-hmm. Uh, got some intense stories. Like your brother and sister got to see me do the thing that I do, which is fun. Which your sister, like she's in journalism as well. She knows what that is. Yeah, my brother commented, because you also took really great photos of the family over Christmas. Mm-hmm. Just kind of, what are, what are those photos called that are not posed? Candid. Candid photos. Uh, a lot of those, and also posed photos. And you took that video of my mom, and my brother made a really beautiful comment to me that it was the first time that he got to see you as, like, the artistic side of you, like, Peter as an artist. Mm-hmm. And he thought that that was really cool to see that version of you. Yeah, because I can come off as a very intellectual, cerebral, dense, sometimes dry person. You're not dry, ever. Well. In certain company, I try to tone it down. So, but yeah, anyway. Um, yeah, so so experimenting with that, that's fun. I really like uh, like Studs Terkel's working. He's a, a guy who was, he was a journalist, but really he was an anthropologist. Uh, I can't remember when. I, I want to say like, like, what, 1950s, maybe something like that, or maybe earlier, like 1920s. Anyway, a, a time well before I was born. But he just went around and he would talk to normal working class people while they were doing whatever they were doing. So he would, you know, go uh, to a diner and he would just ask if he could interview the waitress about what it was like to be a waitress at the diner. Yeah. Uh, talk to the short order line cook. He'd see a guy digging a grave. He'd go over and just talk to the grave digger, right? Right. Like, I don't like Micro, uh, guy from Dirty Jobs, right? Because he kind of does the same, like a, a similar thing, but with today's media where he... He uses television to go and, like, kind of glorify the working man. But really, it's just kind of, like, libertarian propaganda bullshit. And so, but but I like that a whole lot. And then there's there's also this podcast called Radio Diaries uh, that I really enjoy. That is a similar sort of concept of just, you know, stories. Just Is that similar to StoryCorps? Yep, similar to StoryCorps as well. So all these things, these three different things, very similar. It's just normal, everyday people, their stories. So I've been thinking... You know, who in my life is uh, uh, likely to have an entertaining tale or one that I want to record? And I'm kind of still, like, I've only done, like, only a handful of people have taken me up on it. And I'm, I'm getting ready to do some, like, follow-ups to things as well. And it's really helping me get my process down, giving me reps editing, shooting, using the equipment, um, <laughs> learning a ton and fucking up. And so I'm doing this for free for everybody but get, and giving them the stuff. Because they're really helping me way more than I'm providing a service for them. Um, but hopefully the things that I create, especially like, you know, for, for folks who, uh, I, I don't know, I guess everybody can find value in it, but I keep, I keep thinking of like people who are either old now after they're gone or people who are young now who have like really young kids and then their kids listening to, to it when they're older, you know? Yeah. And just the, that idea there, it's, there's great power in that idea. Yeah. And so... Yeah, it's just like the, again, more journalism stuff, right? Like, when I was a kid, I just spent all day in room 151 in high school. Maybe not all day, because I was doing other stuff, too, but, you know, when publishing season came around. What was room 151? uh, Shawnee Mission Northwest High School, shout out uh, Cougars, um, 
it's 151 at that high school. I'm not sure if it still is, but back in the day, it used to be the journalism room, like the the uh, yearbook, newspaper, photography. There was a photo studio, like a dark room. Uh, there was a bank of probably 20 computers where you could do word processing and do uh, like use Adobe InDesign or Photoshop, like the Creative Suite. Um, printers, a classroom with you could probably sit six or like 50 kids in there maybe. I don't mm-hmm. know. So it was a pretty big room. It was pretty pretty decent sized room. I slept many nights on that floor um, when it came time to get, actually get the book out. Cause the, process, the yearbook. Yep, the yearbook. Uh, the process of getting that thing out. So my journalism program named one of the, or the best scholastic journalism program of the last hundred years by the NSPA, or National Scholastic National Scholastic Press Association. Uh-huh. Yeah. So... That's awesome. Good shit. And you were, like, an editor, right? Yeah. Yeah, I was copy editor for the yearbook. That's amazing. The year that we won a pacemaker. That's amazing. Which is the, like, highest award that you can get. Oh, babe. Good That's shit. That's so special. Oh, yeah. So, I think about those times, like, how I'm getting to use those skills now. Hmm. Yeah, in a way that's creative and fulfilling and helps people. Yeah, and eventually people, I mean, people have already, uh, like, this is a fun thing. You know, I I work my regular day job, and now I've got some contracts to uh, do some side work that's actually quite lucrative. Um, So we'll see how that goes. We'll see where that goes in the future. I'm very hopeful for it. But it's kind of, it's the work that I want to be doing. It's collecting the stories of people who want their stories to be told. Yeah. You know, it's just anybody and everybody because everybody's got a story to tell. Everybody's got someone that they want to tell it to. Um, yeah, I'm really excited to undertake more stuff like this. That's wonderful. I'm so glad you have that personal project going on. Yeah. So, yeah, so lots of different art in general, always trying to, like, grow and learn. So I've been learning a lot on YouTube recently just about all the different equipment that I've been buying and... Like, just got a new DSLR camera, got new lighting equipment, got new so like, audio if, recording stuff. If I'm if I'm tracking you correctly, mm-hmm. you have kind of three main creative outlets right now. One, your personal notebook where you write mm-hmm. thoughts and quotes and, you know, anything that's on your mind at any given time. Yeah. Then you have the poetry you write, mm-hmm. um, which is beautiful, by the way. You're an incredible poet. And then third, you have the multimedia aspect of like collecting stories, Mm -hmm. stories and videos and recordings of of other people. Mm -hmm. And are those the three primary creative outlets, passion projects that you have going on? Yeah, just to be clear, like video and audio for the stories. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But yeah, those those are kind of like the big things. And then, you know, we've talked about how like I'm working my way through the Rolling Stone top 100 hip hop albums of the last or, you know, of all time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I play chess and um, I work out. And I think of like all these things, like, yeah, I guess we were talking about art just then, but, you know, they're, they're all kind of just a human practice, like to make me a more complete person, like a like more well rounded. Yeah. Like, yeah, well rounded. Yeah. Yeah. Like more, more fulsome, well rounded, uh, to have like a more enjoyable life experience. Yeah. Yeah, like I, I've been reading these books recently. I, I, I read, what was it, uh, Sapiens, and then I just finished. So I read Sapiens when we were driving to from Kansas City to Los Angeles. On audiobook. On audiobook, because we had a lot of time in the car, and then on planes, and then, like, yeah, other times too. 
And then after I finished that, I well, in between I read that Matthew Perry autobiography on audiobook. But then after that, I started Bill Bryson's A Brief History of Nearly Everything. Uh-huh. And I finished that yesterday and started, immediately after that, started Guns, Germs, and Steel. And cool. Sapiens, A Brief History of Nearly Everything, and Guns, Germs, and Steel have a ton of overlap. And I feel like I have a, like, because I'm seeing the same stuff over and over again, I'm starting to feel like maybe I have a pretty decent understanding of, like, broad human, like, anthropological history. Yeah. Kind of like where we came from, why we do what we do, how we migrated, why we show up, showed up where we showed up, and I feel how like we affected other things. You've been a history nerd and, like, consumed a lot of historical, like, event information over the years just mm. for fun anyway so to have the human anthropological angle being covered yeah. now i feel like gives you an even more like well and a, and a lot of the stuff that i consume the history stuff you know it doesn't go back farther than maybe like uh probably gonna get shit wrong but like thirty thousand years ago in ancient sumeria yeah there, there might be some episodes of the podcast hardcore history by dan carlin that talk about that and by by a couple i mean each of these ones is like five hours long if you don't know hardcore history and you're a history buff check that out it's a great podcast um, but, uh, these other books, they go back to like a hundred plus thousand years ago when homo sapiens were just sort of like coming up yeah. and there were other hominid species like Neanderthals in the same spot. Right. And we fucking murdered them. We like systematically killed them. And then we systematically killed the majority of the huge mammals that could have possibly competed with us. And then we subjugated the, all the continents of the earth that were habitable, for the most part. And then we started fucking doing the same to each other, which had been going on the whole time, but just in mass. Yeah. And now, oh man, I don't know, I don't want to get down that road, but the just the, the conclusions that these books draw, the overlaps in information, uh, it's just been really fun to feel like I have a more fulsome understanding of like early human history and like... Mm-hmm. I think that when you know where you've come from, it's it's easier to see better paths forward. Yeah. Yeah. And so that feels really good, reading those three books. And especially, like, getting a bunch of books in at the start of the year. Yeah. You know? Like, I'm going to do a better job of keeping track of it. Because I only... Th- I think I read something like 15 books last year. Yeah. And I want to read, like, 40. Like, get... Like, let's get some fucking books in this year. Yeah. Um, and just, like, overall, I feel like 2023 is just going to be more productive year in general and I love how it's not just productive and giving of your energy and services to others through work Mm -hmm. but I love how you're investing in yourself with your productivity and your energy as well oh yeah yeah that's the trap that people fall into when they when they think about like you know grind culture on my sigma grind set you know hustle like that kind of Andrew Tate shit right Mm -hmm. uh shout out that fucking rapist hope you rot in jail uh but like Real grind is the bettering of things that will serve you long term, and you're always going to be with your mind and your body and your reputation and the skills that you develop. And yeah. Though that's where real value is. Right. Real value. I mean, I mean we all got to work to make money and to, to support ourselves because we're doing capitalism. We all decided, we got together, we had a rational conversation, we all decided we're doing capitalism. And because of that, you just gotta you gotta eat some shit sometimes and do suboptimal stuff to what you really want to do to live. Uh, but then once you got that, like once you have the privilege of having that shit in hand, 
it is imperative for the health of your soul to work on those other real value items. Yes. That actually fulfill your, like, yeah, create, create I, fulfillment in life. Yeah, it's like, uh, what is that Maslow's hierarchy of needs? We're talking about self-actualization right now, right? Yeah. And so. I want to just very briefly detour. You said something, we're always with our minds and our bodies. Mm-hmm. And when I work with my clients from a mental health perspective, I also tell them that. Mm-hmm. And that is why I encourage them to have a movement practice. Yeah. Because you are always with your body and you want your body to feel like... Um, capable and strong and like you're using it. At least not in pain. And not in pain and like like you're using it the way it's designed to be used. So any sort of a movement practice that serves you. But mentally, I also tell my clients, you can't escape yourself. You're always with your mind. So you may as well make it a safe place to be because the world is not, like the external world or society is not always going to be safe and Mm -hmm. predictable. Yep. So you may as well make your mind a safe place. And that is why I I encourage and try to change and cultivate how my clients talk to themselves in their head Mm -hmm. so that their self-talk is kind and encouraging. Yeah. And like more like a coach to oneself than a drill sergeant. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I really encourage like, you know, just positive self-talk, encouraging self-talk, like grateful and like a gratitude practice when you're doing self-talk um so that's why when you're hard on yourself if you don't play a chess game you like mm-hmm. you know I'm, i always like gently push back on that and remind you to be kind to yourself and encourage yourself not just beat yourself down if you're not doing things the way you want to be doing them just because i think like we want our minds to be a, a safe and kind place to be so i want to unpack that a little bit farther I have done a lot of thinking about self-talk and how it relates to me specifically. Uh-huh. And I feel like I have developed a relationship with myself that is very strong and very sure. Mm-hmm. Like, I know who I am in a real sense. Like, mm-hmm. I know where my shortcomings are because of therapy and, you know, basically being married to a therapist. Mm-hmm. And, like, having those conversations all the time. Well, not all the time, but, like, often enough. More often than the average person, let's say. Mm-hmm. And that reality and that... I've already processed a lot of this stuff, right? So there's no ambiguity about how I really feel about myself. Right. I know how I really feel about myself. Because, like, you know, the the theme for 2023 for me, one of the themes is... Prove to myself that I am who I think I am. Yeah. Right? I already think I am good. Like, now, like, let's fucking go and do it now. Yeah. Right? And so when I have what, yes, on the outside, like, on its face, is negative self-talk, mm-hmm. I don't view myself negatively. It's more just uh, an embodiment of the passion that I'm feeling right then. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah. Like, it's it's like um, sports culture, right? Like, when, when you're a young man in the United States, maybe you experience going to a weight room for the first time and doing weight training, like maybe in high school, right? And you hear people yelling at each other when they're lifting weights, especially kind of towards the ends of sets and things like that. Like, you know, get it up! Get it up, you pussy! Like, and you hear stuff like that, right? And like... Yeah, if you have bad relationships with people... Or yourself. Or yourself, then that can be like a not good thing.
thing. But like if you have camaraderie and you have brotherhood and you got that shared experience, right? Yeah. You, you've developed that trust with other people. And yourself. Hopefully. Hopefully you you look internally and see that, you know, anything that you're accomplishing or anything, just experience, right? We talked about how men, you know, we bond through shared experience, right? Speaking of men, I just want to... I can't let that comment go by. Get it up, you pussy. That is like well, patriarchal and it to- is, toxic it masculinity. Is, it is 100%. You're right. You're right. But like, I'm also citing, you know, what is this, 20 years ago? I know. I just couldn't let that go by go without by. saying sure, something. Sure, sure. And I just want to say, give it context. 20 years ago, we're talking about what, 2004? Yeah. I mean, I understand that, that was common way to... That, young men would speak to each other to encourage each other. I just had to say that that is no longer acceptable. But yeah, t- take the idea, though, that you you are people who, in a sense, love each other. Right. And so you can say, on its face, degrading shit to each other. To encourage to encourage to, And it's not degrading at that point. It's just like, you're, like <clears throat> the embodiment of passion, right? Like... It's it's almost no it's almost no different than when I like if I get to the end of a set and I like let out a grunt or yeah. like a yell like there's no meaning there other than like ah I did it you know yeah right so like I just think you were talking about your self talk personally with yourself well I'm just saying the 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 commonality here is trust so either trust in oneself or trust in the people like or self love or love for one's comrades yeah right without that aspect of it then yes it can be detrimental detrimental it can break you down it can be contributive like to negative, negative self or negative self-image yeah yeah so yeah I get all that but if you can do the work of establishing that trust or that and developing that love, then why not use that powerful tool? Yeah. Like for me, like we've talked about how I'm just like naturally a really angry person. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, cool. Like let's figure out ways that we can take the thing that I naturally do and like put it in a context where that's fine. And constructive. And constructive. And And not destructive. Yeah. And like limit the destructive parts of it. Yeah. Because like it's probably never going away. Not fully. So, but yeah, like, I, I don't know. I, I think about that and I think about like similar with art. Like I don't normally produce art unless I'm pissed off or like feeling passion or like, or sad or something like that. Or an immense amount of love. Or an immense amount of love. Yeah. The, luckily it's been more of a, the immense amount of love for the creating of the art rather than the uh, reaction to negative stimulus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've noticed that shift, especially since you've started to moderate your consumption of like negative, um, media oh deleting facebook was chef's kiss good yeah like you have a lot less like angry and reactive writing and a lot more reflective and writing that's out of Mm -hmm. a place of love and gratitude and i think that's it's been really good for your person like worldview and mental health overall like you're not blind to the hard and negative things going on in the world, mm-hmm. but like it no longer consumes you in such a way that it like drags you, like brings you down, brings your spirit down. Well, you know, I, I think a good part of that is because I've used art to process my thoughts about those negative things. Mm-hmm. You know, because you know, for for a while there, I was really into political theory and literature and like like economics and and social theory and things like that and just seeing what we've been like history right what we've done to each other what we do ourselves what we're doing now and what we're looking like we're going to be doing in the future just had me thinking about life in just such a negative way because and the way that you were 
um, releasing that energy, I feel like, was through, like, a lot of online discourse on Facebook, Mm -hmm. which had a tendency to skew really negative. Yeah. And really, like, high adversarial conversations We already know We already know this about Facebook, that it promotes uh, polarizing content, right? Right. And more often than not, it's going to be rage bait. Right. And that... I think we already know it, and there have already been studies that show this, but I think in in generations to come, we will look back on the first round of social media Uh as something akin to smoking or um, lead and gasoline. You know, when we removed lead and gasoline, murder rates drop precipitously, right? That kind of stuff. It's going to be one of those kind of factors where, like, when we get our hands around this whole rage bait, like negative mental health, like negative mental factors, habituation, like uh, addiction designed thing. Like once we as a society, society do something about that, then we will afterwards look back and be like, man, we really let ourselves get fucked up really bad. Yeah. We really like fed our children paint chips with lead in them. Right. By hand. Right. You know, the equivalent. And yeah, it's, oh man. So now that you have a more constructive outlet to process negative information, Mm-hmm. I see that your your output is less um, dis- destructive, like mm-hmm. converse discourse online. Yes. That kind of fueled the rage, and then it took up time, and it was stupid, and it didn't it didn't produce. But now anything. you're you're um, externalizing and processing the information in a much more healthy and holistic way mm-hmm. that doesn't feed a rage cycle, but actually allows the rage to process and transform and release. Mm-hmm. In a way that like feel, seems healthier for you. Yeah, yeah, and it definitely feels healthier too. Um, it's night. It's fun to be happy. Uh, imagine that. Yeah. Uh, real quick, I want to jump back and uh, cite something. Like I, I've probably talked about this before. I can't remember, but when I was in college, the journalism school had a program that they did with the child psych department, and uh, the 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 program was basically doing like media studies with children, right? And uh, the study, uh, the one I can remember anyway, was where tablets were very new back in like 2007, 2008, and uh, they would give tablets to children, and uh, the control group of children had no access to tablets whatsoever, so the test group of children got unlimited screen time on tablets, and could just use them whenever they wanted for whatever, I mean, within reason for children, right? It's mostly like YouTube and stuff like that. Roblox didn't exist, the addictive chemical known as Roblox. And when they looked at, or when they, they, okay, here's what they did. So then they tested the children on uh, an emotional intelligence test that involved looking at pictures of faces that were making uh, different expressions, like displaying different emotions. And the children were asked what each emotion was. On the face. On the face. Okay. And then they were kind of scored of like how accurate they were, you know. And they, they were, some of them were like really obvious, like sad, like somebody looking really, really sad with a big frown or like somebody looking really angry with a furrowed brow or like, you know, and then there were some that like got kind of like more ambiguous, like surprise, like slightly more ambiguous. So did than, they do a pre-test? They did a pre-test and they did a post-test, right? They so had a, before the yeah. screen time. Yeah, before the screen time, they had all the kids take a test. And then after the screen time, they had all the kids take a test. Uh, and so, and I, I think this, they, they did the screen time for, a, for months, right? Like this was like kind of, kind of like a semester long thing, right? Uh-huh. And so at the end of the semester, they tested the kids again and the kids who had had unlimited screen time scored worse on identifying emotions that were, that had the opportunity for ambiguity. So 
for things like um, fright. You know, you see someone who's frightened, like they're scared. Um, that might be confused with anger. Uh-huh. Right? Or, um... Or, I think you at one point told me, like, surprise. Mm-hmm. Surprise. Uh, confused, confused with anger. Um, just, like, just ba- basically uh, mixing up emotions that, that have some kind of nuance uh-huh. for whatever they're, like, the core, the basis of the emotion is. Yeah. Right? Um, basically, like, seeing, seeing fearful emotions and thinking anger. Right? Because, like, sometimes, you know, the... the the source of our, our fear is anger, things like that. But anyway, I'm kind of getting off into my own conjecture. But the, the shocking thing to me was, yeah, the kids who had to, like a lot of screen time looking at human faces, they, they had less experience looking at human faces because they were always looking at a screen and like having human interactions because they were looking at a screen. And then that led to not being, like not getting those reps in for like doing these things and interpreting and becoming, emotion interpreting and becoming things. worse at it. Yeah. yeah. Because they're basically they're in a sense their emotion muscle atrophied. Yeah. Because they weren't using it. What about the kids in the control group without screen Scored time? Scored great. Scored perfect. Just normal. Like, yeah, got them, got, like, knew what the emotions were. Like, didn't score just as high, you know? You know, like, from a psychological perspective, that's really interesting because based on what we were talking about, the evolution of human history, mm-hmm. like, we evolved to be in community. Oh, yeah, social. Yeah. And we evolved to be social mammals and engage with our community on a regular basis. And so to not be able to read emotion accurately on on a community member's face literally, like, is so Core not... to who we are. Yeah, it's so, mm-hmm. like, detrimental for how we're designed and wired and yeah. makes it so much harder for those children to engage in our, in the world mm-hmm. in a emotionally successful way, interaction-wise, communication-wise, you know, like... Yeah. Be, like the ability to recognize if someone is scared so that you can like comfort them, you know, mm-hmm. versus being afraid of them and contributing possibly to their fear. Yep. So like that emotional intelligence is so key to being able to successfully interact with and engage with others. Mm-hmm. And like, um, you know, we see in the research these days, like kids struggling more at school, struggling more with social interactions, having more social anxiety and I mean, who wouldn't be socially anxious if we can't accurately mm-hmm. interpret the uh, the emotion and behaviors of other people? Yep. Yeah. And so that, yeah, that study is is a big deal. Yeah. And we don't care about that kind of stuff enough yet. Right? Yeah. I mean, the research only came out about 40, 50 years ago that the emotional intelligence of children is just as important as like any other aspect of caring for a child, like feeding them making sure they're hydrated, Mm -hmm. giving them clothing and shelter and, you know, safety. Like, teaching them emotional intelligence is just as important as all those other things. But our parents' generation did not know that. Mm -hmm. Um, It's fairly new research. And so, I mean, I work with a lot of male clients in the millennial age bracket who, like, I'm the first person to teach them about how to... feel emotions and feel Mm -hmm. their feelings i'm the first person to teach them how to interpret the emotions of their like partner Mm -hmm. and how to accurate like you know i've had clients say like when my wife is upset and she comes to me with a big emotion i literally feel like i don't know what to do and i have to teach them how to comfort how to validate how to affirm someone who's upset because especially little boys from our you know mm-hmm. parents' generation, they weren't taught those things. Mm-hmm. And a lot of little girls did have a lot of emotional um, 
intelligence training and uh, emotional socializing with each other in play. Mm -hmm. And so I was talking to a client about the gap in our parents' generation who didn't know to teach little boys that are now be, are now like millennial adult men who are in relationships. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the world has changed where partners, you know, whether it's like a heteronormative, like female-male dynamic is a lot of, like some of the couples I work with, mm-hmm. the female partner is expecting, um, not just desiring or wanting, but actually expecting emotional engagement from their male partners. Mm-hmm. And the male partners don't have the tools because they weren't taught as children mm-hmm. how to emotionally support and engage with and connect with their female partner. And so with a lot of my couples, I kind of ended end up doing a lot of emotional coaching with the men and um, expectation management with the women and mm-hmm. reminding them like your husband or your your, your partner your boyfriend wasn't taught this as a child. We have to be patient because he's now learning it as an adult. Mm-hmm. But luckily, the research has been out enough, long enough, that a lot of like, a lot more adults are realizing that it's important to teach children emotional intelligence. So I have a lot more hope for like younger generations, like the younger males I work with that are in their teens or early twenties, have a lot higher emotional intelligence and awareness, self awareness around their emotions than like like people in our age bracket, like the millennial males. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I just like, I just find that really, really interesting. Um, Because in our parents' generation and and earlier, a lot of like wives, traditional wives um, or part female partners did not have that expectation of emotional engagement from their male counterpart. You know, Mm -hmm. they went to their friends or their community with that. Right. But that has shifted and changed where they now expect it from their partner. And so, yeah, it's kind of a fun job to, you know, teach men how to feel their feelings and how to support someone who's having a big feeling. And, you know, not just men. I work with like queer couples and, you know, non cishet couples. Um, but I guess I was just speaking strictly, mostly about the heteronormative couples. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just I, that was kind of a mental health detour. But <laughs> like you, like basically, you were talking about the importance of emotional intelligence yeah. and processing, and yeah, yeah. So that I, that's what I was kind of commenting on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and you know, even if you want to take it back to like I don't know, quote unquote, traditional masculinity. Like if you're if you're trying to be really like traditionally masculine, like one of the things is having a strong, sharp mind, right? Strong, sharp mind and mm-hmm. mute or suppress your feelings right. unless it's anger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Teaching my male adult male clients how to get down to their core primary emotions and not just their secondary emotion of anger and giving them that permission to feel feelings like, that are more tender like mm-hmm. and more vulnerable, like hurt or sadness or disappointment or frustration, and the nuances of how that, those emotions feel in their body as opposed to just anger um, has been really fulfilling work. Yeah. Like even you saying, like, I'm a pretty just angry person. Being your partner, I see you feel and express towards me, maybe not explicitly, but you know, implicitly, a wide range of emotions besides anger but like again you probably weren't taught the nuances and to name like those 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 other emotions besides anger and so anger becomes like the primary one that's most 
most often identified. Yeah. But like you definitely exhibit like so much more than that to me. Like I don't see like when you call yourself an angry person, that's not how I actually see you. I just see you as a passionate person. But I, I see you because probably because of like condition social conditioning, that passion often gets interpreted or felt as anger when it it can be a wide range of other feelings. All right, join us next time on the Liz and Peter Therapy Hour, brought to you by Hinnanau Tahiti. Tahiti's beer make every time a Hinnanau time. Also Folgers.